electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. And if you thought Netflix was bad last night, it's a lot worse this afternoon. The shares are down 37% now. The company is worth less than $100 billion. Is it too late for Netflix to turn things around? We'll talk to the analyst who called this one right. Needham's Laura Martin is here and why she just upgraded the stock. But is what's bad for Netflix good for other parts of the market, like oil, for instance? Why our guest says this makes him even more bullish on energy, becoming a bigger and bigger part of the market. And yesterday in earnings exchange, we warned you that investors were more excited for IBM than for Netflix. And in today's edition, we tackle Tesla, United Airlines, and Alcoa. But first, the man over there, Dom Chu, on these markets. This guy over here is going to have that Alcoa call on metals later on in earnings exchange. So I'm getting ready for that. But right now, as Kelly pointed out, we have a very interesting trade developing in the markets right now because we're reverting back to some of the themes that we've seen over the course of the last several months. That is underperformance in technology and growth stocks and outperformance in others. Right now, the Dow Industrials up 361 points. That represents Roughly session highs right now, up about 1%. One-third percent gains for the S&P 500, more tilted toward technology. And even more so tilted toward technology and communication services is the Nasdaq Composite off 100 points, roughly three-quarters of 1% to the downside. So a big kind of gap moving there. Watching what's happening with a very hot sector in today's trade right now. And it's due in large part to one company in particular. We're talking about Procter & Gamble, which is up 2.5%, not far away from record highs. It comes out with an earnings report that was better than expected for not just revenues, but also for profits as well. It also upped its forecast for a key level of sales growth going forward. That's what has those shares higher. So near session highs, that's propping up a lot of the other staples names like Walmart, Coca-Cola, Hershey and Hormel Foods. And all of these stocks get gold stars because they've all hit Record highs at some point in trading today. So watch that consumer staples trade. And by the way, later on this afternoon, Procter & Gamble CEO John Moeller will be on with the folks over at Closing Bell for a big, big time interview talking a lot about inflation, talking about the consumer trends and whatnot. A must watch interview there and Closing Bell in the 3 p.m. hour today. And we're going to end, as Kelly mentioned, with the stock of the day. It has to be Netflix because it is down now 35 percent off the session lows. Kelly mentioned that it's worth a little less than $100 billion right now. To give you some idea of what it was at the peak just in the fall of this past year, it was over $300 billion in terms of that size. It was at one point in its history bigger than Disney. That's how far it's fallen. Netflix, certainly the stock of the day, one to watch. And I'll send things back over to you, Kelly. One of the most incredible market stories of the past couple of years, and that's saying something. Dom, thank you. Netflix is our big story today. Let's kick things off right there. We have all the angles covered with Julia Borston having the latest from the company. Mark Douglas is the CEO of ad tech company Mountain. He's got our advertising angle covered. Tech investor Molly Wood has our competition in streaming. And Laura Martin, Needham's senior internet analyst, has our trades today. She's upgrading Netflix to hold from underperform after being vindicated with her call for the last few years that they should and would at an ad-based 
tier. Welcome to everybody. We're thrilled that you're here. Julia, let's start with you and get the latest. Well, the big headline here is that the company lost 200,000 subscribers in the first quarter instead of adding the 2.7 million that analysts had projected. And things are going to get worse before they get better. Netflix guided to the loss of 2 million subs in the second quarter instead of guiding to the addition of 2.6 million, which is what analysts were looking for. Now, as for its slower revenue growth, Netflix blamed market penetration, competition, sluggish economic growth, inflation and password share to 100 million households. Now, to help reverse that slowing growth, they are working to turn some of those households into subscribers. And in a big 180, co-CEO Reed Hastings saying he's open to advertising, saying ads are a key way to give consumers a lower cost choice. Allowing consumers who would like to have a lower price and are advertising tolerant um, get what they want makes a lot of sense. So that's something we're looking at now. We're trying to figure out over the next year or two. Um, but think of us as quite open to offering uh, even lower prices with advertising as a, a consumer choice. Meanwhile, co-CEO Ted Sarando says they are focused on improving the quality of the programming as well as the programming recommendations. Kelly? That was one key plank, this openness to advertising. The other, Julia, did they specifically talk about any openness to sports and live news programming? A very good question, because those were two things, advertising and live news and sports, two things that Netflix has been very clear it was opposed to for a very long time. So in the earnings call last night, there was this question, now that you're open to ads, does this mean you might also be open to sports? And the answer was not for now, that they do see a clear path to using ads to bring down the cost, to have a, a, a profitable engagement with advertising. They said it is not clear uh, that sports would do the same thing for them. Sports rights are expensive, very competitive space, and wouldn't necessarily add that much value for them. So it was still a not for now on sports and news. And remember, there just aren't that many sports rights up for grabs, and a lot of the other big tech giants, such as Apple and Amazon, are increasingly looking at those rights as well. Absolutely. Julia, thank you very, very much, our Julia Borston. Laura, I will turn to you first. If you want to tackle that aspect of this first, is it a mistake for Netflix not to be openly pursuing sports and live news right now? Yeah, I think the key point is they need to innovate faster. They need to not be the last streaming service to add an advertising tier when everyone else has one. And similarly, they should be doing, even if it's sports adjacent documentaries like the big Michael Jordan, they can be doing content around live sports, even if they aren't directly bidding for live sports rights. And they're doing some stuff with F1. I don't know if you think of car racing as like sports, maybe you don't, but they should be doing things in the ancillary market and news also, like you can get news free on your platform and that's in as long as you rev share so when you get advertising here you should be able to sign up a bunch of the news services just like roku has today which well, is an avot service lord do you want to just react to what an extraordinary <laughs> what an extraordinary 24 hours this has been for the company and i mean it is i think poetic justice that now you have finally upgraded them to market perform yeah, we've been a sell on this one for a really long time, and it was really painful going through COVID because they had a couple you know, months where they were really strong. Look, I would say this. Um, we were right for the right reasons, meaning they needed an ad-driven tier so they could compete with everyone else at a lower price point. They do need to figure out a way to bundle their service because their churn is going up. They need to figure out a way to bundle the way Disney and Peacock and Paramount all of bundles. 
Um, and they really need to have a broader genre of sports because the consumer has the, the, the job that the consumer wants done is entertaining them in leisure hours. So when Russia invades Ukraine, you can't just have entertainment programming. You got to have news programming on that day. And similarly with live sports, where there's something fantastic going on in the sports world, you need to be able to have access to that. And their competitors do. So they need to solve some of these genre issues, as well as the business model issues, as well as the bundling issues to lower churn. So we think they're on that path. I found yesterday very blamey of external factors and them reacting. Hmm. And I think we need they need to put more of that blame on their decision making being slow. So I'm hoping that this sort of... Um, you know, slap in the face of these numbers they're reporting is a wake up call for them to start looking side to side because many streamers are doing much more innovative things. They need to be copying those other more innovative streamers. Mark Douglas, the ad man, let me turn to you because one of the things Laura pointed out was that even with this openness to advertising, the actual platform sounds like it could be at least a year away. How much more quickly should they be moving? And can you just respond generally to how this will change the landscape and the opportunities in streaming? Yeah, so I think it will take a bit of time for them to introduce um, advertising into the platform. I mean, there are a lot of decisions to make. Is it ads at the beginning of the shows, during the shows? Um, is what content is again? So there are a lot of decisions to make. That's going to take a lot of time. But, you know, fundamentally, there are consumers want to want to be entertained. And if Netflix brings in a price point that's on the level of a cup of coffee in New York City, you know, there's just a huge number around the new consumers, I think, are going to um, go on to Netflix. And I think that's not just in the U.S., where they have 70 and 80 percent market penetration. I think the opportunity worldwide for Netflix to continue to expand their user base is incredible. And I'm like, I, I would be buying Netflix all day long today at this price. <laughs> well, no one's stopping you, are they? <laughs> well, I am. So I hope everyone yeah, follow me so the price moves up. I'm all for it. <laughs> I, I love it. All right, Mark Douglas, making a move on Net, uh, Netflix. Molly, let me turn to you, Molly Wood. There are a couple of things here, like Laura said, the company's own strategy is maybe no longer bearing out the way it once did when they were the early pioneer with their huge success in streaming. Let's talk about binging, for instance, whereas my colleagues point out, when you watch some shows on Apple and some of the other streaming platforms, they make you watch once a week like the old school TV uh, channels used to. What does it do? It makes you stick around for a little while longer. You can't just watch a show in a night and cancel it the next day. So, Molly, what do you think about the streaming competition today? And why are all the stocks down? Is the whole field just oversaturated? Isn't anybody benefiting from their declines? You know, it's interesting because Netflix certainly was the pioneer of Netflix is in an innovator's dilemma and they were the pioneer of what we came to call streaming fatigue, which everybody has. There are so many options right now. And Netflix tried to build a moat in effectively the worst and most expensive way possible, which was to pour money into content, which I can tell you is not a good strategy. It's expensive and there's so much of it that it's very hard to compete. So they created this sort of populist product, but at premium pricing. I, I am not happy as a customer to find out that I was paying $20 a month to subsidize 100 million people who were password sharing when Netflix, you know, even before going so far as introducing something like ads, Netflix could be slicing and dicing the content it has and offering tiered subscriptions. Let people who are password sharing pay five or six bu bucks a month for just the library 
for example. Or if you just want to get movies, create a tier for that. Like, I think there's a lot of creativity to Laura's point and innovation that could have happened all this time. And networks, Netflix prioritized growing and then pumping out lots and lots of forgettable content that, to your exact point, you could, Kelly, you could consume really quickly and then be done with, meaning you're on a permanent flywheel and pumping money into content like that is just a black hole. And Laura, I guess to kind of put a point on this, you know, we are seeing big declines across Paramount, uh, across the, you know, Disney, the rest of the landscape, even though we're saying there are aspects of those models that Netflix needs to emulate. What does that tell you about the value destruction investors are worried about here? So, yeah, I think the question that Netflix has raised is, is the total number of streaming subscribers smaller than we thought? And are the unit economics lower than we thought? So these enormous content budgets, Disney's going to spend 30 billion this year, of which 20 is on entertainment. Are they really ever going to pay off? Hmm. Um, but, but by the way, if the answer is no, that means just we get consolidation faster. There'll be three of these in three years instead of three of these in 10 years. So at the end of the day, a winning strategy is to lose streaming and get bought by one of the big guys. Right. <laughs> Mark, actually, to that point, I was thinking about this, that Netflix has now, it's, this has really thrown open uh, the whole industry. I mean, when, when, the, when the incumbent looks mortal, then all of a sudden really interesting things can happen, right? I mean, I don't know what kind of combinations, advertising opportunities. The consumer is crying out for someone to rebundle all of this, aren't they? Yeah, a bit. But the look, if the average consumer, I think there have been studies done that say they're willing to spend roughly 40 to 50 dollars a month on entertainment, basically streaming entertainment. So Netflix, I've always said Netflix fills the hours between everyone else's hit shows <laughs> and, and even their own hit shows. When you are like, what are we going to watch? The first choice is let's go and see what's on Netflix. That's not going away, which means Netflix is not going away. And then you have basically these other players trying to fill premium spots. So I think Netflix has always filled that position. They, they have a huge content library. And I think consumers, that's how they think of them. And that's not, that's not going to change. One other thing is those 100 million subscribers that are using other people's passwords, that's the first group, I think, as was mentioned, to start charging this lower tier price point to. So you're looking at just a huge, they could increase their customer base by almost a third just yeah. off those yeah. subscribers. Yeah. And that's why I think it's just an incredible opportunity that we're looking at, not like a downturn for Netflix. It's an, it's, it's an upturn, I think. We are one of those password sharing households. I, you know, my, my husband's sister's account. Yeah, Laura is too. Laura, can you quickly comment on uh, executive turnover? I mean, do if we're about to enter a different era in which consolidation is key, does that require a different management team? So, wow, that is a question I have not gotten yet today. But anyway, let's address first the employee turnover. As you know, there's a shortage of labor um, in America right now. And specifically relating to Netflix, we now have a price point at Netflix that they last achieved in 2018, which means if you've joined this company in the last five years, you are not making any money on your equity. I expect people to leave and go to Disney and go to Warner Brothers Paramount and go to Paramount. So that's going to be a problem for them because the most important asset you have is your content creatives, creatives and executives. So I expect them to start losing people, which will be a lead indicator to faster value destruction as they try to attract people with these this lousy stock price of theirs. Molly, if you would comment on that kind of same question, you know, does this 
are we in a different and new era now for streaming? And if so, you know, what should the leadership look like and what should consumers expect? We unquestionably are. And again, although Netflix may have pioneered this shift to streaming and the shift to digital, if I'm going to pay 40 or 50 bucks a month for streaming, it's going to be increasingly hard to justify Netflix being half of that if they don't innovate. And so without immediate signs of innovation, whether it's you know creating new pricing tiers or figuring out how, for example, to do that shared watching experience where maybe one side of one party is renting a movie to watch, right? There are sort of so many opportunities for innovation. And I think if we don't start to see that in the next three months to six months, and all we see is like, well, we might pivot to ads eventually, then yeah, I think you do have to ask yourself real questions about leadership because there's no doubt at all that the landscape has changed. Everyone came for Netflix and Netflix did not change to keep up with them and that's a problem. And if there's one commonality from everybody's comments, innovation absolutely seems to be the key word here. We'll leave it there. Thanks, uh, this was so much fun. Laura Martin, Mark Douglas and Molly Wood talking through the Netflix saga. Coming up, a bold energy call that's actually tied to Netflix's disappointing results. We'll tell you why tech's pain could be energy's gain as we mark two years since oil prices turned negative. But first, the small caps have been underperforming the S&P since Jan 1. They're still beating the broader index over the past two years, though. And the case for small caps to get back in leadership is next on The Exchange. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds. Thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. 20-year bonds up for auction. These are notable for a couple of reasons. Highest yield across the curve. Maybe it'll tell us something about what's going on with Japan's demand right now. Rick Santelli is tracking all the action at the CME for us. Hi, Rick. You're right in focus, in tune with the markets, Kelly, because, yes, foreigners figured big into this auction. Let's go through it. 16 billion 20-year bonds, the 24th auction of 20-year bonds. The yield... 3.095, which is well below where the when issued market was trading, and that alone gave it a very good grade. My grade on this auction, A+. Plus. Does it get any higher than that? The internals are all fabulous. As a matter of fact, highest bid to cover in all 24 20-year auctions. But here's the thing, Kelly. Indirect bids that include foreigners, that include the Japanese, 75.9%. I have never seen a number that high. It just blows away all the other numbers for the other 24 auctions, which means that dealers only took 8.7% because investors, especially foreign ones, were fighting for the 20-year. And indeed, as you look at the charts, you can see clearly that we had a bit of a rise in rates 
That's an understatement, of course, earlier in the week, but the drop that started yesterday from very significant levels seemed to incite investors, especially foreigners, that if you're going to grab an instrument, grab the one with the highest yield on the curve. Kelly, back to you. Remarkable stats. Rick, thank you for bringing that to us. Rick Santelli in Chicago. All right, we didn't quite cross above 3% on the 10-year yield yet, but so far this rising rate environment has been a headwind for the small caps. My next guest says that's about to change, and it's time to get offensive. Joining me now is Sandy Villery. He is the co-portfolio manager of the Villery Balance Fund. Sandy, it's good to see you again. And has this the main headwind for small caps just been that the defensive uh, positioning is what's mostly been working in this market? That, that's exactly right. I mean, as, as rates go up and, and they're going to continue to, right, the Fed's talked about 50 basis points, probably more in, in May and then June and July. And so as that happens, it is a, a bit of a headwind. But what I can tell you, historically, if you look back over the last six rate hike cycles, going back to 1986, small caps have actually averaged about 17 percent from the first uh, hike. So we, we think it is an opportunity to take advantage of, you know, let's call it beaten up sectors like technology or even look, look at the Vanguard growth, even on a large cap standpoint, uh, up about, I mean, down about 14% year to date with uh, Vanguard value, you know, up about 2%. So that's 16% delta. I just think it's time to play a little offense. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's a stock pickers market. I mean, stocks follow earnings and we're going to find those companies that can do well. Look at Netflix today. It, yeah. it's, it's kind of bringing down the market, but it's a it's a stock picker's market. you got to be on the right companies. It is weird because you think if value's outperforming, if the financials are supposed to do well, both of those things would typically favor small caps, right? Yeah, that's right. So financials being more domestically oriented and also, um, you know, they're going to do well as, as they can have more net interest margin and things like that. So they should do well in, in, in rising rates. And, and just look at the breakdown of the Russell 2000 versus the S&P 500. The S&P is about 28% in technology, whereas the Russell's only, you know, about 14%. So if, uh, if if rates going up are bad for technology stocks, that should hurt the, the large cap uh, index, you know, disproportionately to small cap. And even for people who, like you said, don't want to make a big call right now, but are acknowledging the stock picking environment right now. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're looking at name. Is Freeport considered a small cap? Freeport McMoran it, on semi, which, again, I think of as a, a much bigger company and Palomar Holdings. Yeah, Palomar is definitely the smallest one of that group. And, and again, I, I think they're going to earn. You know, something like uh, three dollars in two thousand and and twenty two, and four dollars in two thousand and twenty three. So you have a, a company that's going to be growing at thirty percent. This is an insurance company. Um, you know, that's going to be growing at thirty percent, trading at fifteen times earnings. So I think that's a real uh, a real value. The CEO Mac Armstrong's been doing a great job, and I just think again, eventually the the, the stock price will will follow those those earnings. And you know, on semis a little bit bigger. Um, and and it's um, it's just it's it's really hitting on every cylinder. Um, Hassan Al Khori was uh, with another company we owned before, uh, Cypress Semiconductor, and he was supposed to get margins to 45% in three years. He's already got a, got him above that, you know, right now. So um, that stock is also cheap, and in industrial automation and electric vehicles and and, and 5G build out. Um, I think that one's going to work well. And then Freeport's the last one that is a much larger cap company, but um, you know, really should work well as a hedge against inflation. And also electric vehicles using about four times as much copper as combustion engine cars. I think uh, Freeport works out well uh, for, for investors uh, also. Well, I can't wait to see what happens with the, the small versus large. But certainly the sectors that you've picked have been working no matter what size. Uh, well, semis will be the asterisk there. But copper uh, insurance names we know in, in the Dow, those have been strong as well. Sandy, it's great to have you here. Thanks so much today. 
Thanks, Kelly. Take Sa- care. Sandy Villery with the Villery Balanced Fund. We're going to hear much more about rates and inflation on the exchange tomorrow. Sarah Eisen is moderating the IMF debate on the global economy, whose panelists include Jay Powell and Christine Lagarde. We will have it live beginning at 1 p.m. Eastern time right here. Looking forward to that. Still ahead, while new home construction remains strong, sales of the existing home inventory keep slowing. It doesn't help that home prices remain stubbornly high and mortgage rates are now soaring. We have the latest numbers ahead. Plus, brace yourselves. Another round of results are coming after the bell today. And we have a preview in earnings exchange. The action, the story and the trades for Tesla, United Airlines and Alcoa. That's next on The Exchange. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Welcome back, everybody, to The Exchange. I'm Tyler Matheson. Here's your CNBC's news update at this hour. In the besieged city of Mariupol, a Ukrainian commander says his troops may be able to only last hours longer as Russian forces continue to attack. He urged the international community to help evacuate women, children, and the elderly from the besieged city. In Washington, D.C., Secret Service officers shot and killed an intruder at the home of the Peruvian ambassador to the United States. People in the residence called for help when the suspect began breaking windows. The film company producing the movie Rust has been issued the maximum possible state fines for firearm safety. New Mexico regulators found there were willful safety violations ahead of the fatal shooting of cinematographer Halnia Hutchins by actor Alec Baldwin. And in Virginia, Johnny Depp addressing specific accusations of assault by his ex-wife Amber Heard. Depp said nothing happened during confrontations where Heard claims he hit her. On the news tonight with Shep Smith, will jurors believe Depp's testimony? Shep will break it down with a legal expert tonight at 7 Eastern time. Kelly, back to you. I'll see you soon, Tyler. Thank you very much. Still ahead, today is the two-year anniversary of oil prices going negative. My next guest called that one. His new call, energy not just rallying, but hitting 10% of the S&P 500. And there's a Netflix angle. He'll explain next. Welcome back. Oil has been on a roller coaster ride of late, surging to over $130 a barrel this year and prompting all sorts of government intervention to lower prices. 
And yet two years ago today, its price went deeply negative. Analyst Paul Sankey called the move right here on the exchange on March 19th of 2020, saying oil could turn negative as supply then far exceeded demand. That came true a month later when crude hit a low of negative $37 a barrel. And he's back with another bold call, which is that oil stocks will hit 10% of the S&P. And that's as much because of the shrinkage in stocks like Netflix as because of the upside for energy. Paul Sankey is back to discuss. Welcome, sir. Hello, Kelly. How are you? Put the just connect the dots for us quickly. What, what your reaction to Netflix is? I don't want to call it an implosion, but and what why you think that means energy, which has shriveled to three percent of the market, could still grow substantially from here? Well, the long term. Well, the, the, the most important is the cost of capital. I think this is the most underanalyzed part of the market from the point of view, certainly of analysts. The market actually self-analyzes it and does a brilliant job, and that's kind of what it's doing with the overall Nasdaq versus the S and P, for example, where it's implying obviously the Fed raising rates, the cost of capital going up, and the value of equity therefore goes down if returns don't keep up. If I hope I'm making sense. Yeah. So we cut, additionally cut. Uh, for example, Netflix's returns outlook, you really have a double whammy where you're looking at a much, much lower equity value. And it could be for any tech stock uh, based on the fact that your anticipation of a lot of future cash flow gets massively cut. And then in the context of rising uh, cost of capital, your equity value gets cut even more. And, and that's basically what's happening with some of these names that were very highly valued at very low interest rates, very low cost of capital with a very strong outlook because of COVID and people watching uh, internet TV and so on. Now that's that's radically changed. And at the same time with the oils, what you are seeing here is very strong cash generation uh, and very strong cash return to shareholders in a tough market with buybacks. That's going to make them outperform. Let's talk about the oil price. You know, I'll go ahead and ask for another call on this one. You know, it's really kind of... Um fluctuated, hovered around the $100 a barrel mark for the last couple months or so since that big spike. Where do we go from here? I mean, do you see it going structurally higher? Does it matter? Can the Do you think the energy energy can be 10% of the S&P even if we kind of stay at current levels or even go lower? I think generally speaking, the argument is that when oil prices are rising with demand rising, you will outperform the S&P 500. But I think that at the moment, the free cash flow of the oil equities is so high, the free cash flow yield, we're talking about stocks here with 20 and 30% free cash flow yield, wow. um, you know, compared to the market as sort of two or 3%. Uh, there's, there's a lot of power to that. And all of that's really considering about 80, $85 oil. So, you know, at a hundred, we're definitely, we're definitely doing just great. I was smiling because I remember, I think it was last time I was on, you were saying it's been pretty calm in oil recently. <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? But you know, the big one at the moment, Kelly, which is really tough is the China COVID situation. I mean, that one is an absolute head scratcher and that's obviously huge for demand. You know, we think there may be 2 million barrels a day of lost demand right there, which is a big deal. But again, you assume that's going to come back. And then we had, for example, last week, the Delta Airlines CEO talking about very strong demand for for jet travel and, and, and transatlantic and business travel. So there's actually more demand to come in a high price environment. And that's very powerful for the outperformance argument. Yeah, as you know, China hopefully reopens and, and normalizes here, it's not like we have a big uh, supply lever that we can pull. So our oil price is gonna spike again? Uh, there's a risk of it because of course, as you know, this is with the uh, governments pushing down, pushing out a lot of strategic emergency reserves. 
and you know we're still at a hundred hundred plus uh, oil you know even with that additional oil and you can't you, there's actually quite a long way to go through the emergency reserves but the market will get increasingly nervous about that as a sustainable supply source and at the same time the truly sustainable supply which is going to be things like Saudi Arabia or the US is very questionable uh, in terms of how much more it can grow so for example yesterday we had the Halliburton CEO on his call saying, I think we're maxed out on fracking capacity in the US right now. Hmm. You can't make uh, oil production without fracking. And so it's really saying that there's not going to be a whole lot of great acceleration in US growth, despite the uh, very high prices. So finally, let's talk about your favorite places to be in the energy space right now. Is it still the refiners? Yeah, I mean, everyone, everyone who does oil is really thrilled about refining at the moment, not just the short term, but also you've shut a lot of refining capacity. So we think this is a structural move. And you also lose a lot of refining capacity in Russia, assuming that that doesn't come back. So it's actually a longer term uh, trade than just the usual, uh, let's buy them into driving season. So that's one area. And then, of course, you know, if you're saying, well, it's going to 10% of the S&P, you kind of love them all. So, um, you know, whether it's a US EMP, a lot of them are much better companies with much better strategies. Exxon will do very well with uh, high downstream earnings as well as high upstream earnings. The list kind of goes on. All right. We'll see you for two for two. Paul, it's great to have you back. Thanks, Thanks so much. Paul sure. Sankey with Sankey Research. And still ahead, Tesla options are implying a 13% move on its results tonight, while less than half the street is bullish on United. And with aluminum prices 15% off their highs, does that spell trouble or not for Alcoa? We'll get the story and the trade on each of these names ahead of their results tonight next. Welcome back. It's time for Earnings Exchange. Today's edition featuring Tesla as investors gear up for potentially another big market moving report after the bell. So let's get the story of the action and the trade on all three key names that are reporting tonight, starting with Tesla, which has beaten earnings estimates for the past eight quarters. But the shares fell more than 11% on Tesla's results in January, and they're down about 9% already in April. Philip Bowe is here with the story on Tesla, and Danielle Shea has our trades today. She is Director of Options at Simpler Trading. Welcome to you both. Phil, what are we looking for? Kelly, it's the numbers within the numbers that people will be focused on. Auto gross margin, how much pressure have they been under as they open up two plants, one in Austin, one in Germany. Also, what is the company going to be saying about the chip supply and production in China? Those are a couple of the wild cards that are out there. China in particular, because they shut down the plant the last four or five days of March, so that will impact Q1 numbers a little bit. Not a lot, but a little bit. But we haven't really seen production resume so far in April, which then raises the question, how long will it be down? How much will it hurt uh, their production forecast? That's going to come out during the conference call. Uh, unlikely that we see the numbers uh, reflecting that right away uh, when the numbers first come out. But the conference call, and obviously on the conference call, it's Elon Musk. What does he say? Right. And Phil, just to be clear, because there was we didn't know until I mean, so he tweeted himself that he will definitely be on that call yep. around what time? 530 Eastern? Uh, 5.30 Eastern is when the call started. Somebody uh, tweeted at him directly and said, are you going to be on the call? And he said yes. So now the question becomes, Kelly, how much will he be asked about Twitter and possibly collateralizing his stake in Tesla to fund a purchase of Twitter? Now, he's going to get some questions. He has a history. When analysts continue to ask about certain things he doesn't want to talk about, if he doesn't want to talk about it, 
He, he will cut him off. He'll say, that's it. I'm done. I'm not talking anymore. So it's really going to be interesting to see, A, how much he wants to talk about it, and B, how much that dominates the conversation versus Tesla-specific questions in terms of ramping up production this year. For sure, for sure. Danielle, uh, think of you as sort of a longtime Tesla bull here. Michael Burry had a tweet. I believe he's since deleted it, but he basically said, watch out because Tesla could go the way of Netflix. You know, it pioneered the category, but here comes the competition and watch out. You know, you know, I don't, I don't believe it. it. He, has he has always, always tried, to tried to go after Tesla, Tesla for one reason, reason or another, or another and I still can't, still can't figure, figure out why. But I am, I am a very, a very strong, strong Tesla bull, so, so perhaps, perhaps that's why that's I disagree. Why I disagree. When, you're, when looking you're looking at Tesla, Tesla, I mean, I do agree with this quarter, yes, there was a variety of issues. You know, you have supply chain costs, uh, you have the Shanghai shutdown. I think we just but lost overall, Daniel's I mean, it's Hey. All right. Danielle, you good? You want to keep going? Do we have sound? I think we're good. Go ahead. Okay. Should I repeat that? All right. So when you're looking at Tesla over the course of, you know, the past quarter, yes, there were a lot of issues. We had issues with Shanghai. We've had issues with the supply chain, but overall Tesla's done a fantastic job um, getting past a lot of those issues. And when you look at the way that they have now opened two different factories, I think their guidance is going to be incredibly strong this quarter in particular due to the increased capacity loads that they have. However, I want to point out that on the earnings report, while it did fall during market hours last quarter, um, the overnight moves have actually gotten smaller and smaller and smaller over the course of the last three years. When you look at Tesla, it's continued to price in a higher move throughout the course of the week and throughout the course of the trading day. But in reality, it really only moves about 3% overnight. So I think that in the options market, particularly looking at selling calls and puts on both sides with some protection makes the most sense because I'm actually looking for a muted move. Yeah, we know you like earnings momentum, and that's exactly what Tesla shares have shown in recent quarters. We'll see if they continue that tonight with everything else that is going on. And Phil, stay with us because we'll turn now to shares United Airlines. They also report tonight with two straight years of losses under their belt. The street expecting much the same for Q1 to the tune of about $4 a share of these losses amid high fuel costs and COVID variant concerns. But rival Delta just reported better than expected results. So could United surprise to the upside fail the shares? They're up about 3% this well, week. Kelly, whether or not they surprise in Q1, I don't think anybody cares about it. I'm being totally honest with you. Q1 was a disaster for all of the airlines, at least through President's Day, and then it turned around. The focus for United will be, what are you seeing for Q2? What are you seeing for the rest of this year? If the numbers and the optimism is as strong as what we saw from Delta, watch out. Because I think this is what we're seeing for the, all the airlines right now. I think that what we have seen is a true switch in terms of travel demand that is out there, both leisure, and we're starting to see it more on the corporate side. So it's all about what does United say about the second quarter, the summer, heading into the fall. That's going to be the focus. And then we'll be talking with Scott Kirby during Fast Money tonight. All right. And meanwhile, Danielle, you're saying kind of you're feeling kind of neutral to bearish on United here. What do they got to do to impress you? Well, you know, I completely agree with everything that Phil said, but the fact of the matter is, is that they're in a downtrend and they've already rallied going into the report. And even if they do move 2% to the upside, which is about what's expected, 
it's just going to move the stock directly into key resistance at about the $50 price point. For me, on a weekly chart, it's in a downtrend. It makes the most sense to short it. I just think overall, the airliners, I mean, they've really done nothing over the course of the past you know, 18 months. Sure, there was a trade right after the COVID crash, but for me, it just doesn't make sense to try and bet on this to the long side when there's so many other relative strength winners you can focus on. And on a break, you're saying of 43, you could see a return to 35 a share. So there's United around 46 and change. Quick programming note, by the way, United CEO Scott Kirby will join Fast Money tonight at 5 p.m. Eastern uh, to react to those results, perhaps discuss and provide a little more color. Uh, Phil, our thanks to you very much, Phil LeBeau, for bringing us the story on that one. And finally, we turn to Alcoa. Alcoa, the former bellwether. The aluminum producer now out of the Dow, but they've beaten EPS estimates for two straight years, basically since that happened. And by the way, those beats took place even before the commodity super cycle started. This year, the shares are definitely benefiting. They're already up 160 percent, and they've generally been popping after results lately. Dom Chu is back with that story. Dom? All right. So, Kelly, we don't talk about it as much because, like you said, I mean, it split itself up, remember, back in 2016 into two separate companies. And then since then, one of those companies split itself again. But the Alcoa that we know of today has been absolutely, as you point out, on a bull run. And then that that's thanks in large part to the run up in metals prices exacerbated, of course, by the war between Ukraine and Russia. Remember that today's Alcoa is the so-called upstream business, right, of aluminum. That's the mining, the smelting, the production business side of things. It's that old world, not so sexy, not so growthy business, but it's now one of the hottest ones out there. Companies are clamoring to get their hands on raw materials like aluminum, even at these inflated prices. Now, that optimism is definitely reflected, as you point out, in that stock price. Now, over the last 12 months, remember, the S&P is up up 8 percent, 160 percent gains for Alcoa in that same time. By the way, that's pushed the market value to nearly $16 billion, which is, by the way, more than the growthy Howmet Aerospace operations that were split off from Arconic, which was split off from Alcoa back in the day. Howmet, by the way, Kelly, is worth around $15.5 billion right now. So the expectation, $2.93 a share in earnings, $3.45 billion in sales, and the options market is pricing in a, a move of roughly 5.8% up or down. And believe it or not, guys, that's less volatile than it's been over the last eight quarters on earnings reports. Wow. It averages around seven and a quarter percent moves on those days, Kel. Back over It's the return of Alcoa. Danielle, you say this is one of the most gorgeous bullish charts out there right now. Yes. You know, Kelly, I love the technical chart on this one. I love the macro story behind it. I think that even the move today, I mean, it, it fell lower. It hit the 50 simple. It's bouncing right there. I think it's at a great buy spot. You know, I hate buying stocks anywhere near um, highs, right? But if I can get them when they fall and fall back down into an area of support, I mean, for me, that's a great entry point, especially when there's still upside potential. When I'm looking at Alcoa, yes, I mean, normally, you know, we've had about a two to 7% move over the course of the last four quarters. Uh, but ultimately, I'm looking for about a $100 price point. I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow, but I do think that it makes sense for traders to either A, come in before earnings and get long, long Alcoa, Alcoa, either by selling puts or just buying the shares. If you don't like getting in front of earnings, which I know a lot of people don't, then you can just wait until after the report, after the news hits, and try to trade it higher into May and June. Because, I mean, this is a very strong bullish trend, and I want to ride it to a new high. 
All right. We will leave it there. Danielle Shea, our thanks as always. Dom Chu, we really appreciate it. With the tree, they're not the only ones, by the way. It's going to be a busy after hour session. Alcoa, United, Tesla, and a whole lot more. Still ahead, it's not all doom and gloom in tech today, despite what's happening with Netflix. This legacy name is up nearly 9% so far this week, thanks to a big earnings boost today. We have the name and some of today's other big movers next. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. The Dow is near the session high when it was up 388. We're about 30 points off that level. And for once, it's outperforming with a 1% gain versus a third of a percent for the S&P. The Nasdaq down three quarters of 1%, although it's actually halved its earlier declines. IBM was the mystery chart we showed you before the break. The stock having a great day. It's on pace for its best day in two years after an earnings beat and an 8% revenue jump in Q1, thanks in part to its cloud business. Shares still up 7.5% to 139. CEO Arvind Krishna will be on Closing Bell for an exclusive interview today, 3 p.m. Eastern, with more on those results. Meantime, shares of Lululemon getting squeezed after the retailer announced a five-year plan to double revenue. It's focusing on international sales along with men's and digital, but the shares are selling off about 4%. Tomorrow morning, don't miss an exclusive with the CEO of Lululemon, Calvin McDonald. That'll be around 9.30 Eastern on Squawk on the Street. Still ahead, home prices still on the rise despite mortgage rates jumping above 5%. But can housing stay hot? A look at some warning signs in the data next. Welcome back, everybody. Existing home sales, not great. Better than expected in March with rates on the rise. But there's a bit of a catch. Diana Olick is here with all of the latest housing data for us. Diana? Well, Kelly, we were expecting a drop in March, and it was a tiny bit less than expected, but only because February's sales were revised much lower. So suffice it to say, sales are falling. But the headline here is that prices are still on fire. The median price of an existing home sold in March was $375,300, an increase of 15% from March of last year, and the highest price the realtors have ever recorded, at least since they started in 1968. Now, prices are still strong because supply is not getting any better, just 950,000 homes for sale at the end of March, a 9.5% drop from the year before. So what about those rising mortgage rates we keep talking about? Well, these March sales figures are based on closings. So contracts likely signed in January and February when mortgage rates rose from 3.29 to 3.9, according to Mortgage News Daily. Now, rates then really jumped in March and April. Now we're around 5.35%. And that's why we're seeing serious bleeding in mortgage demand. It's nearly half of what it was a year ago, according to the mortgage bankers. Refis are down nearly 70%, but even applications to buy a home, they were down last week 14% from a year ago. And one more note, the Realtors lockbox indicator, this is this thing that measures how many potential buyers open up those key boxes at the front door. It was down 19% in March from a year ago. So that has to be those higher mortgage rates now finally playing into the market, Kelly. But still new home construction keeps rising, so it doesn't feel like the whole market falling through just yet. Well, the new home report we got yesterday, we really saw the jump in multifamily. That's rental apartments. And we definitely need that new supply. But we did see a drop in single-family housing starts and single-family permits, which are an indicator of future construction. And builder sentiment also dropped. So we're seeing that on the single-family side, though still good to see construction in multifamily. No, that's a really key point, though. I'd still like to watch a single-family for the trend. Diana, always appreciate it. Thank you so much, our Diana Olick, with the latest on housing. And that does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.